The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Ahead today on The Exchange, stocks are higher as Putin backs off for now. President Biden will give remarks on Russia just before the market close. Meantime, we got another hot reading on inflation. Producer prices up 9.7% on the year. We're going to look at the tug of war between these headlines and the impact on markets. Oil reversing lower after hitting a seven-year high. Our guest says $120 a barrel could still be on the horizon. We'll look at why the energy stocks have been faltering this week. And in earnings exchange, we look ahead to key reports from Shopify, Roblox, and Airbnb. But first, let's get to Dom Chu with those markets. All right, so the general tone of the market today has been positive. Green, unlike your dress right now, which is a very bright red. However, if you look at the markets, they have been generally positive, as I said, but in a fairly tight trading range. Now, it's pretty good if it's a tight trading range and it's been pretty much to the upside, but still, though, we're near the lows of the session, if you want to call it that, for many parts of the market. The Dow Industrials were up over 400-some points at one point. 323 is where we stand right now, up 1%. The S&P 500, 44.50 the last trade. They're up roughly 50 points, 1% gains there. And then the Nasdaq Composite, 14,015, up 225 points. Again, off-session highs, up about 1%. One and two-thirds percent. So yes, green. Yes, tight trading range. We'll see how that lasts into the afternoon part of our trading day. Now, one part of the market that's been extraordinarily strong because it has seen a lot of volatility has been the semiconductor index. The Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF, the ticker SMH, is up 4% right now. One of the best performing industry groups. And just to give you an idea, guys, just about five minutes ago, the top six most Biggest upside gains on the day in the NASDAQ 100 were all semiconductor stocks. So watch that. 271 is a a level some traders are watching. That's the 200-day average price. So keep an eye on that. And then another green part of the market. COVID is something that hasn't been as much in the headlines these days as Russia, Ukraine, and perhaps the Fed and rates and inflation. But look at these travel stocks. Marriott International, I get to put a gold star there because it's another record high there today. Expedia, also a record high. Those stocks up big. United Airlines, Carnival Corporation, and some of the big ETFs that track leisure and travel are all up big today. So keep an eye on those travel reopening names. Semiconductors as well. A lot of green on the screen. We'll see if it stays. Back over to you, Yeah, they're loving the lack of COVID headlines, I think. Dom, thank you very much. Stocks overall are are jumping today as the Russia-Ukraine headlines ease somewhat. But that also shifts the focus back to inflation, with the producer price index surging 1% in just the month of January and nearly 10% over the past year. Still, one of my next guests doesn't think the Fed will tighten as much as the markets expect right now. Joining me now is Kevin Mon, the president and chief investment officer of Henyon & Walsh Asset Management. Also with us is Jeff Krumpelman, the chief investment strategist and head of equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Welcome to you both. Kevin, you think they're going to end up going it slow here? Yeah, these record-setting levels in inflation continue to persist, Kelly. But we have to remember that the Fed doesn't only have one tool in their arsenal, that being raising interest rates. Rather, I think they're going to take a more blended TNT approach to trying to combat inflation. First being tapering. They're going to complete their bond purchase program by the end of March. Then they're going to look to shrink the size of their balance sheet, which Chair Powell is suggesting they'll start to do that later this spring. 
and then finally tightening by raising interest rates. The last dot plot chart we saw showed four potential rate hikes of 25 basis points each this week. So suggesting that they're going to raise rates seven to eight to nine times this year, I think is getting a little ahead of ourselves at this point. All right. But uh, Jeff, let's sort of turn. I think both of you have acknowledged that these inflation pressures are real. They are persistent. I believe you think we're only going to get maybe a high single digit return on stocks this year. Is that right? Yeah, I do. But I still think, you know, that's a, a positive result. We certainly don't see recession or negative returns this year. We see rising volatility because of these issues like inflation that you raise. But we would look for inflation also to moderate. Uh, we do think the Fed is talking a, a hawkish game right now. But the market overall is saying in terms of Fed fund futures that we're only going to see 2% Fed funds rates by the end of 2023. And, you know, that's still accommodative. That does not derail markets. If you have inflation of calming to, say, two to three, and you only have 2% Fed funds rate, you're talking about, you know, zero real interest rates. That's still very supportive of uh, growth in the economy uh, and in the markets and will drive positive return. And Jeff, you always have, you know, a bunch of individual names across a lot of different sectors that you're interested in. That remains true today. I see Booking on here. I see Adobe and Qualcomm. I see United Rentals, Oshkosh. I see even a materials name in Newmont. Is there an overarching kind of uh, thing, a characteristic you're looking for with these companies or is each one unique? I think there are three points I'd make. One is balance. So you'll notice that there's a nice blend of cyclical as well as growth oriented uh, stocks. Innovation is a theme, and you can find that both in the growth world or the value world. So Aptiv is an example of, you know, a cyclical stock as an auto supplier, but very tethered to advanced driving and electric vehicles. And you can go through all of the other picks, whether it's Adobe within technology, ServiceNow that are tethered to the the cloud and and rising productivity. Um, And then you get Oshkosh that is, you know, in specialty vehicles also tethered to electric vehicles um, and, and special uses. So I think you want to blend growth and value. You want to make sure you have innovation there um, and stay balanced. Yeah, despite the performance of some innovation ETFs over the past nine months, it's not a, not a, a dirty word uh, in your vocabulary. Kevin, let me turn back to not you and again, just probe a little bit here on the Fed. You know, can they really back off or afford to kind of go it slow when we're getting the inflation readings that we're getting. And the argument here is not about whether inflation is peaked. That doesn't matter. What matters is for how long we might see price pressures upwards of two, three, four or higher percent. And is that a situation they need to get ahead of? Yeah, unfortunately, the Fed doesn't have a magic wand where they could just wave it and make inflation go away. And it arguably are a little bit behind the curve right now. They likely should have started raising rates last year when the market could have absorbed them a little bit better to allow for their gradual ascent. But I still believe with their combined approach of shrinking the size of their balance sheet, of ending their bond purchase program and slowly and gradually raising interest rates, that should start to help moderate these inflationary pressures. But in this rising rate environment where the economy should continue to expand, there are opportunities for investors, Kelly, and particularly we like global dividend paying stocks to help combat those inflationary pressures and still give investors some income in an environment where interest rates are going to still stay at historic lows, even if the Fed raises rates four, five, six times this year. So that's how you get because your group is a bit eclectic, but international dividend payers would certainly sum things up. You have Roche, you have Sony, you have, is it ICC Bank? 
ICIC a bank. Yes, an Indian bank. Uh, we have the Swiss drug maker Roche, and of course the Japanese uh, electronics maker Sony. All of those are part Kelly of our international momentum strategy uh, with Dorsey Wright at Smart Trust, and they really look towards those areas of the international markets that have momentum right now. And we think this is the opportunity to start looking overseas for growth potential, remembering that thus far this year, international stocks are actually outperforming U.S. And emerging stocks are actually in the black this year so far. Wow, incredible, given the headwinds with Russia and some of these other parts. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. guys, thank you very much. Always bringing us the good information. We appreciate it. Kevin Mann and Jeff Crumpleman on these markets. Let's turn to oil. Down nearly 4% today as Russia's defense ministry said it has begun returning some troops to their home base. While tensions at the Ukraine border may be cooling off for the moment, my next guest says oil prices will remain high and could still spike to 120 a barrel. He also dares to say that we are in an energy regression and not an energy transition. Let's bring in Paul Sankey. He's the lead analyst at Sankey Research, of course. Paul, welcome. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I have to say uh, a couple of times ago I was on and one of your viewers complained about my appearance. So he asked me in future to wear a jacket and tie. So, uh, <laughs> I appreciate that you treat them with the respect that they deserve. Uh, Paul, there's so much I want to talk about in the energy transition piece. But before we get to that, let's just talk more near term. Um, 120 a barrel, is that only if there's an invasion? And if there's not, then where are we landing? No, the 80 to 120, what we were saying is that the oil price is getting squeezed into a higher range. Uh, which is 80 to 120, with 120 being uh, the point of demand destruction. As you know, the oil price is very high in, in certain countries with weaker currencies, let's say Turkey or Brazil or India. Uh, so it is a concern even at current levels. But American demand, as you know, is very strong. And so we're not seeing the point of demand destruction even here uh, at over $90 a barrel. The 120 is the level we think you will get U.S. demand destruction. As you probably know, Cities Ed Morse, who we spoke to about a week ago about oil prices, thinks we're going to be landing in the 60s by the end of this year because he basically thinks more supply is going to be coming online. Is that a likely scenario that people should consider and take seriously? Well, Ed obviously has tremendous experience and is, is a voice. I think he loves to be contrarian as well. So it's a contrarian view. And I'm, I think we're glad he's out there because it's very worrying when everyone's bullish. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see. We've got big results coming up. We've just had Continental, uh, a major U.S. E&P, down 8% today on, on higher spending. Wow. Uh, we've got Devon tonight reporting, uh, you know, and we're going into a, a week here of very significant uh, earnings reports, Pioneer tomorrow, some of the real signature names in U.S. E&P. If we get strong uh, discipline from these guys, I think you're going to find that the market's tight. Uh, on an ongoing basis, and we don't get a huge surge in supply in the second half. And this is all X any potential invasion uh, by Russia. Absolutely. Let's dwell on Continental for a moment. Maybe we can show the chart. But what does it tell you that the shares are down sharply on those increased spending plans? How is that going to be taken by the rest of the industry? You know, we used to see this with refiners. They would announce uh, significant CapEx plans, and the stock would get crushed on the day. And eventually, the likes of Valero got the memo and simply, you know, became very capitalistic and very organized about cash returns to shareholders. So I'm happy when companies lose discipline a little bit to see the market really pound them. Of course, Continental's caught a big down day for oil as well today, but it's much underperforming because of this concern 
of higher spending, absolutely. But in other words, is their stock price reaction actually bullish for the price of oil? Does it mean it's going higher? If, if those major companies who are out there saying we're going to increase our spending are being met with that kind of sell-off, does that mean we're not going to see a big supply response? Exactly. That's, that's exactly my point. And um, yeah, so we want this capital discipline because the marginal price of oil is set by U.S. exploration and production companies. However much they grow, however much they produce incrementally essentially sets the price of oil. And so the more disciplined, the higher the price. All right. So let's end. You like Chevron, you like Exxon. Also, Devon and Diamondback. Why these in particular? Uh, Devon and Diamondback are just two very good quality assets. Uh, you know, high quality assets, high quality management, high quality strategy regarding buybacks and, and cash return. Because obviously, the other part of not wanting the companies to spend a lot is that we want to generate, uh, you know, high dividends and high buybacks. Because ultimately, we are in the next 20 years at the end of the oil age. We believe these companies should go into effectively orderly liquidation uh, and essentially turn themselves private as by far the most attractive thing they can do for shareholders. And so, the more they, the more they uh, hand back cash, the more we like them. And those names are all very disciplined in this regard. Fascinating. Everything that you said sums up what's going on in the energy space right now. Paul, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Kelly. Paul Sankey with Sankey Research. All right, coming up, the top hedge fund of 2020. We're going to speak exclusively with the man who scored a 4,000% ROI return on investment during the early days of the pandemic while the S&P plunged 20%. The founder and chief investment officer of Universa Investments, Mark Spitznagel, is here after the break. Plus, Airbnb on pace for its best month in a year, while Shopify is having its longest monthly losing streak in six years, and Roblox is having its worst quarter since going public. Earnings from all three are on tap. We'll get you ready with a preview in Earnings Exchange. Don't go anywhere. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. There is an old saying, you got to risk it for the biscuit. But our next guest has made risk mitigation his mantra and used it to post a gain of 4,000 percent in the first quarter of 2020. Brian Sullivan is live at the Tiger 21 annual meeting. He's joined by the founder of Universa Investments, Mark Spitznagel. We are pleased to welcome you both. Brian? Kelly, thanks. Now I'm hungry. Now I'm thinking about biscuits, <laughs> but I appreciate that. Uh, but now let's talk about the other one, risk. Because that's where you shine, Mark, and you've got a very unique strategy, uh, sort of long tail, low probability, but extreme events. Uh, you have outperformed the macro market net annualized for over a decade. 
are we due for some big event again because of the Fed, inflation, some big mistake? Good question. <laughs> it's, it What's the answer? It doesn't enter my, my radar. I, I, it's just not the way I think about it, but it would seem like we would be, right? But, you know, it's a mistake for people to think about this tactically. We're, I'm going to get it wrong. You're going to get it wrong. Um, you know, you can see sentiment swings on things like the, what's going on today uh, in Ukraine, and it, it just gets you leaning the wrong way when you try to overthink these kinds of things. Well, you do these these these, these low probability but high return situations at Universa, and, and nobody really has done it better than you guys. And you outline this in your book. We just came off a nice, a nice panel where we had 45 minutes, by the way, to talk about it. And you would express to me you think the Fed is a risk. The balance sheet is massive. They're going to unwind that at the same time trying to raise rates. They've never done it. We've never been in a market like this before. You got inflation. How big of a risk is the Fed and a Fed mistake right now? Yeah, it's a primary risk. Which way is the mistake? Too much tightening or too, 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 too easy? Um, you know, I think you need, you need, you know, we're in the throes of MMT, modern monetary theory right now, whether we like, choose to accept that or not. Um, I think you need, always need to check your premises here when you think that the Fed can even tighten. Um, to think that the Fed can tighten, send us into a recession, I think that would be okay with the, with the markets, with the economy. Um, I think it's a giving a little too much credence to, where, to, to how healthy one thinks the markets are today. They're not healthy at all. We're only here because of monetary interventionism. And I appreciate Kelly's letting you jump question. in real Kelly? quick. I just wanted to follow up, Mark, on that point that you just made, which really speaks to the skepticism everybody has about the Fed. When you say that we're in the throes to MMT right now, do you mean that the Fed doesn't have the intellectual desire to tighten? Or do you think that the markets are literally not set up in a way in which they can tighten the, to the extent that they need? You know, it's a great question. Frankly, frankly, I think it, it's a big bluff. I, I, I mean, these guys are smart. They, know, they generally know what they're doing. Um, you know, they're, they're, they sort of paying themselves into, into a corner. Um, and I think there's kind of jawboning a little bit of, of tightening so that they don't have to actually do it. Look, the markets have already priced it in. That might be enough. And then they can kind of back off on it. I, 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 I tend to think um, that we're, it's being overstated. And then, Mark, I mean, think, look at it. We always, the markets do this. They overstate, they, they overpredict the degree of tightening. Um, um, uh, it's, it's just kind of the way this thing works. Do you think the bond market will bully the Fed into a move it doesn't want to make? Um, I mean, what the bond market will do is it will tighten for the Fed. So to the, to the contrary, the, the bond market will maybe take, the, take some of the pressure off, off the Fed, actually. Um, that's kind of, it's kind of what we're seeing, and we're certainly seeing that in the front end of the, of, the, of the forward curve. I look at what's happening with credit spreads in Europe. I look what's happening with yield spreads here in the United States. Um, you can joke, yield, you know, yield spreads have predicted eight of the last four recessions. Yeah. Uh, but the, you could make the case given inflation, given Fed, given the mistakes, given everything else, uh, that there could be a recession on the horizon. What's your, what's your, I know you're not a forecaster per se, but you have to predict outlier events. Could the, could the U.S. economy be shakier than we think? Yeah, but so in the past re recessions, the way this has always worked is the Fed has tightened us into a recession. It's just kind of the way this works. I mean, Will the, they do it again? I don't think that they have the luxury of doing that again. And this is kind of what I've been saying um, really since 08. This time is, is, is going to be different. Um, this is not sort of your run-of-the-mill bubble. It's not your run-of-the-mill debt cycle. Um, this is a big one. Um, is and, it a bubble? Uh, 
I, I mean, it, I think it's hard to make the case against it being a bubble. Um, it's, it's, it's a debt bubble. It's a boom-bust cycle created by debt. Let's remember that when, when, when the Fed sort of prints money, they're not, it's not money falling from the sky. They are, they're creating debt. Um, debt is a liability that people have to pay off. Debt can create short-term inflation, but ultimately, um, debt is deflationary. This is something that I think people don't, don't, don't fully appreciate. And part of your strategy, fi- wrapping up here, is obviously some of these, these extreme moves in short periods of time that you and your clients have profited handsomely from. Do you see any of that in crypto right now? Crypto is not a safe haven. And it certainly isn't a risk mitigation strategy. It's not. Um, It's a speculative play. Um, It's a speculative play. People think of it sort of as an antidote to the environment we're in. Um, I, I see it as more of a symptom of the environment. So I think, I, I think it's, it's, the technology is good, but you've sort of overlaid this casino on top of it, which has turned into a be- different beast altogether. If you watch the Super Bowl, almost every commercial break was some kind of an ad, crypto or NFT. It's, a, it's a, an interesting world. Mark Spitznagel, Universal, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And by the way, Kelly, I read his book on the way out here. Uh, it's called Safe Haven. Uh, it's, it's an excellent book. It's got some unique ideas. And uh, I want to say just not a promotion of your book, but I'm sure you don't mind. Uh, a really fascinating <laughs> read. So, Mark, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. No think- biscuits in it, but there are pirates. Yeah, that interview has certainly, I think, um, really spoken to the pulse of the market right now. Great stuff. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for bringing that to us. Thanks, Our Kelly. Brian Sullivan with Mark Spitznagel of Universa. Still ahead, forget FANG. If you're feeling miffed about its performance lately, how about MIFT as a new trade? M-I-F-T will explain that next. Plus, restaurants are having a rough start to the year as they recover from the worst of the pandemic. But ahead, we'll look at two that are booming and whether more federal help could be on the way. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow was up 482 points at the high, so we're about 100 points off those levels. But green across the board, gains of 1% for the major averages. Here are some of the movers this hour. Gig economy stocks are up, just like the travel names we talked about earlier. Uber and Lyft are leading the way. Lyft is up 7%. And by the way, it's the only one of this group right now that's tracking for a monthly gain. The alt energy stocks, stocks, a similar performance. They're outperforming today, as you can see here. Uh, fuel sales up 14%. A lot of these names still 60 to 80% lower from their 52-week highs. And check out shares of Zillow. They've been on a tear since reporting last week, up more than 30% since then, including 10% today. 
also still down 70% from their all-time high a year ago. But that's been a big turnaround point lately, that earnings report. And finally, shares of Virgin Galactic are surging after the company announced it's opening ticket sales to the public for the first time tomorrow. Their tickets are priced at $450,000 each. You have to deposit $150,000. Uh, the stock is up almost 30% today and still down 80% from its highs last summer. Over to Frank Holland now for a CNBC News update. Frank? Hey there, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. One of the former officers involved in the killing of George Floyd is on the stand in his civil rights trial. Tao To says it's not unusual for cadets to use their knees during handcuff training and that he was never corrected for it. The two other former officers who were charged are also expected to take the stand. On the news tonight, prosecutors say Ahmad Arbery's killers had a history of using racial slurs. Defense attorneys say their client's pursuit of Arbery was not driven by race. How the opening statement set up the hate, hate trial that is still to come. That's tonight on 7 Eastern. Uh, President Biden will give brief remarks on Russia and Ukraine in about two hours. The White House says Biden will reiterate that the U.S. remains open to high-level talks to de-escalate tensions between Russia and Ukraine. And a woman in New York City appears to have been cured of her HIV infection. She was given a stem cell transplant and umbilical cord blood transfusion more than 15 months ago. Doctors say she has no detectable signs of HIV and is considered to be in long-term remission. That's the very latest. Kelly, back over to Great you. Great news, Frank, thank you. Still ahead, Airbnb, Shopify, and Roblox are all set to report, and the options market is signaling some pops. Roblox, by the way, surged as much as 35% after its last report. We're gonna have the action, the story, and the trades on these names next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back, everyone. It's time for another edition of Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on three names getting set to report results. Today, let's start with Airbnb. They report after the bell. Shares are higher by about 4.5% into this print as more vaccinations and a rebound in travel are giving them a boost. They're about 20% off their highs, though, and banking on the staying power of remote and flexible work for more growth. Dom Chu is here with the story for us today. And with our trades, Marianne Montaigne is the portfolio manager at Gradient Investments. Marianne, it's great to have you on board. Dom, let's start with you. And what are you watching in Airbnb? All right. So Airbnb, Kelly, like you said, one of those big travel related winners today. It's one of the 10 biggest gainers, by the way, in the Nasdaq 100 so far today. But it hasn't had the real upward stock trend over the medium to longer term that Marriott and Expedia have both seen. And by the way, both those stocks, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, hit record highs today. The consensus among analysts is for non-GAAP or adjusted earnings of 26 cents a share roughly $1.47 billion worth of total revenues. Now, some of the key things to keep an eye out for include that bookings data. Will they continue to show where the overall trend for travel is in a post-pandemic, so to speak, world and whether those trends remain intact? The comps will be relatively easy given more of the travel hesitancy at the same time last year. Then there's the trend in rentals in key geographies away from major metro areas. To your point, it's that work from home. Are people still renting for extended periods of time as they continue to do that work away from the office? Is that starting to revert back to normal vacation type lengths? And then there's the streak, Kelly. Airbnb has not, has not been a public company for very long, but after the last four earnings reports since going public, the stock has not fallen once on the heels of earnings day. Wow. And by the way, the options market is currently pricing in what could be an approximate 9% move in the stock up or down, Kelly. All right, they've held up better than many new entrants to the market. Marianne, you think revenge travel is the theme here. Does it make you a buyer of Airbnb? Yeah, well... 
Not really Airbnb. So we like the idea of the revenge travel, people getting away from the mundane, getting out there to experience various things, take the family. Uh, so we like airlines, we like hotels, we like restaurants, <coughs> but not Airbnb. Um, I think that what most people don't realize is about 40% of their business is only in the U.S. There's been other parts of the world that have had tighter lockdowns on uh, COVID, and so the fourth quarter numbers are probably going to disappoint. Um, but I do think that you could see progress in future bookings, maybe in that 35% area, 35 to 40% area. Uh, that would be good. But um, for us, it's like 15 times estimated revenues, uh, no earnings, uh, no, no uh, prospect of earnings. Uh, we're in a high interest rate environment. We're still steering away from this and looking for other opportunities in that uh, travel industry. Yes, yeah, so you almost like the sector X Airbnb. Tom, what would you add? Because it does seem to be a split. You know, the names that would hold Airbnb, typically those which more favor the high growth and newer companies to market versus the ones that would favor more of the traditional travel names. So so I, I guess it's maybe about the brand recognition of some of the market that Airbnb is key in, right? That kind of that home rental type market, hosts out there, whether or not more people are putting their houses up for rental, that sort of thing. But remember, there's, there's competition from other platforms. We talk about verbal often on this particular show, we talk about this notion that there is more competition for this kind of thing. Even as paradigms change in travel, will Airbnb still be able to maintain that leadership dynamic? That's something to watch there as well. Although most of the folks I know, you know how we say Google is a verb and Amazon is a verb almost these days. People just say Airbnb yeah. like they're going to rent a home. So they still got a big advantage on that front. Very true. All right. So Marianne's going to sit Airbnb out, but we'll see what she thinks about the other two. Dom, thanks. Quick programming note, don't miss Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky live tomorrow morning on Tech Check around 11 a.m. Eastern time. And next up, we'll head to Roblox. Call it a metaverse play. They're up after the bell with their earnings coming off a disastrous January where they plummeted nearly 40 percent, falling victim to that broader tech wreck. Kate Rooney has the story on this one. Hi, Kate. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, this has been a big growth story. It went public last year. It's also been a play, like you mentioned, on the metaverse and gaming. Wall Street's really focused on any of those growth metrics and how they measure up to what the company saw last year, as well as 2022 outlook. Company not profitable yet, so that is still the expectation for this quarter or the previous quarter that we're going to get today. Looking for a loss on EPS. Partnerships, also a big area to watch. Roblox just announced a big one, signed a big deal with the NFL. Then bookings and average bookings per user. That's a key KPI, as they call it. And then total user numbers. That's measured by average daily active users. Hours engaged is the other one, which if my nieces are any indication, I'm sure there's still a lot of engagement on that platform. They were looking for Robux and Robux only for Christmas last year. <laughs> but uh, you hear that from a lot of young parents. So we'll see how the quarter uh, ended up, though, in terms of user engagement. All right, Marianne, what do you do with the stock? Uh, you know, it's just too expensive for us. 60 times this year's estimated EBITDA. Uh, that leaves us pretty cold. Um, you know, can it continue to grow profits? Sure. Um, is it the ultimate leveler in the gaming software universe? Absolutely. But that valuation just leaves us cold. Aren't you tantalized by the metaverse, Marianne? I saw just today Disney's uh, forming a team or hiring somebody to head up their efforts on that front. So do you have to play meta stock specifically, given that Roblox, Roblox and Facebook have been such a struggle? Um, or can you just kind of wait and uh, pick your moment to enter that world? Yeah, I think there's going to be more moments uh, that, you know, the pullback in the highest valuation 
uh, names I don't think is over with. Um, we still have rising interest rates ahead of us. You saw the inflation rate today. We, we just really need to get uh, the, um, uh, the supplies back into our economy. But in the meantime, I think that these are very vulnerable. That's interesting because it has been, you know, an 80 percent pullback already for some. But I take your point that it, that doesn't mean it's over yet. Roblox CEO, by the way, will be on in a CNBC exclusive tomorrow morning on Squawk on the Street. We look forward to hearing from them with results and then in that interview. And Kate, stick around, if you will. Let's hit some Shopify before we go, because they are before the bell tomorrow morning. The Canadian e-commerce giant had a pretty tough start to the year, actually. This stock is 50% off its highs. What do we watch for in this report, Kate? Yeah, that's right, Kelly. I mean, another big pandemic winner, and it's been a growth story. So watch that growth rate. That's been uh, one of the big reasons the stock is down about 50% from the all-time high. People are worried about growth, rising interest rates. So EPS is expected to fall uh, to about 30 cents from 99 cents a year ago. Very tough comparison. That's something to keep in mind. Margins are key here. Gross merchandise volume, also known as GMV, that's a key metric, in online retail. So you got to watch that. It's essentially the amount of sales. And then finally, the outlook. People are really desperate to hear from a lot of these tech companies, what is this next calendar year going to look like? Listen for the outlook. If it's not in the earnings release, any sort of color uh, on the earnings call tomorrow. All right, Marianne, somehow I have a feeling you're not going to be a buyer of Shopify. Am I right? That's right. You know, while we appreciate the fact that they're growing at twice the rate of e-commerce uh, and they've been able to improve their margins from 3% back in 2019 to roughly 21% wow. for the year just ended, I think there's they're going to talk about pressure on margins for the next couple of years as they continue to reinvest into these businesses that they've been buying, these acquisitions. And so with a 30-time revenue kind of valuation on this name, I uh, we see the valuation probably coming in further. All right. Then I'm going to ask you for one name that you, as my son says, that you do like, uh, Marianne, before we go here. Okay. Uh, the one name I do like is uh, Southwest Airlines. Love. I, I think that they've made that transition into, you know, again, the revenge travel, the getting people back on board. At least for the local side of things, we like the fact that it is more family-oriented rather than business-oriented, and it is more U.S.-centric than it is global overseas. All right. Well, this morphed into sort of a three bales and a buy edition of earnings exchange here. It's been very fun. Marianne, thanks for joining us with your thoughts on all of these stocks. Kate Rooney, thank you as well. And we await reports from all three of these companies beginning after the bell. Still ahead, the pandemic has been devastating to many restaurants. But there are some that not only survived, but have actually thrived. What did they do differently? We'll introduce you to two of them next. Welcome back. Many restaurants have had to close permanently because of the pandemic. But there are some owners that have not only been able to keep the doors open, but to actually grow their business. Kate Rogers introduces us to two of them. April Anderson's Good Cakes and Bakes in Detroit was ready to leap into action with a smart pivot at the start of the pandemic. So the company expanded its delivery platform and teamed up with Gold Belly to ship its cakes nationwide, which had always been a goal of Anderson's. Business has boomed, shipping up to 100 cakes a day and grossing over $1 million for the first time in 2021. The way that we have been able to grow, it really has let me know that the planning and the thinking uh, forward thinking that I had before the pandemic has really paid off. 
In Oakland, Matt Horn hadn't envisioned opening his highly anticipated restaurant, Cowbird, with the pandemic still raging. But he'd done it before. Horn opened up his namesake Horn Barbecue in the fall of 2020 to great fanfare, even as COVID threw curveballs left and right. A lot of people are happy with the opening of Cowbird, especially in the community. So to be able to have something positive, you know, in the midst of adversity and, you know, this constant bad news, you know, is really cool. From labor shortages to supply chain headaches and skyrocketing costs for goods, Horn said both stores are facing challenges, but the work of the team keeps them going. For them to come in every day with a smile on their face, that's something that keeps me going as a chef and, you know, as a restaurant owner. And it gives you hope, you know, because we aren't a restaurant without our strong team. Now, these two owners are outliers in a pandemic that has just gutted the industry, Kelly. The National Restaurant Association said some 90,000 restaurants have closed either temporarily or for good due to COVID. Wow. All right. So they're all we know uh, with these accepted, so many are still struggling. So the question has been what kind of federal aid could or would or, or might they expect at this point? What are the prospects? So many of these businesses were helped by PPP 1 and 2 and also the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. The National Restaurant Association is pushing for another $48 billion to replenish the RRF. They say that would help to resolve some 170,000 applications that are sitting with the SBA from restaurants that need aid that weren't able to get served under that program because there was just under $30 billion. So it was much smaller than many of the other aid programs. And as we all know, so many of these restaurants are very much still struggling, Kelly. Yeah, for sure. Kate, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Our Kate Rogers. We should note that NBC Universal and Comcast Ventures are investors in Acorns. Still ahead, tensions at the Russia-Ukraine border are easing for now, but the question is, will that last? My next guest goes through several different outcomes here and how each of them would play out across the markets. And during February, we're celebrating Black History and featuring some of our CNBC Financial Advisor Council members. Here's Rianca Dorsonville with her advice for future leaders. My advice to future leaders is to co-create a collaborative environment with your team. Be a leader, not just by title, but also by example. And specifically to the Black leaders, continue to be yourself unapologetically. No one is you, and that is your power. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Markets hanging on to gains as Ukraine tensions calm down. But my next guest says these next few days are key to understanding if this possible invasion is all just a bluff from Russian President Vladimir Putin. If it is, there could be significant upside to key commodities and equities. And if not, well, joining me now is Marco Popich. He's the chief strategist at the Clock Tower Group. Marco, it's great to have you back. Run me through the most likely scenario at this point. Well, it's great to uh, speak with you, Kelly. I think the most likely scenario is still that this was all uh, an attempt by Russia to basically intimidate Ukraine, intimidate the West, split the West, get France and Germany to be negotiating with Moscow independent of the U.S., which is precisely what happened. Uh, that remains my main uh, scenario here. And one of the reasons for that is that, you know, large scale invasions tend not to be pre-announced on exact dates. That seems very, very surprising if, if this were to become a, a large scale invasion of Ukraine. Now, there is still a probability that Russia does want to create like a military flex to show its power and uh, does something that would look like 
a large-scale invasion, but then it withdraws to just the parts of the country that it's actually interested in. This is very similar to 2008 Georgia scenario. And that would obviously be uh, very difficult for the market to digest, given that it's been ignoring this issue for basically two months. Yeah, and that we have to look at this through the lens of markets, which are pretty blunt instrument for a situation as sophisticated as what you describe. I mean, how would you recommend people, you know, I don't even want to say are exposed to this. Most people are trying to think how not to be exposed to this. I think commodities are clearly a, a way to hedge against this ridge, but not necessarily oil. Oil has already gone up quite a bit. You've got a very hawkish Fed that if it uh, truly is as hawkish as it's, many people think it's going to be, there could be downside risk to oil prices through the demand function. As such, I'm far more bullish metals, particularly those that Russia would be uh, you know, exposed to or that investors would be exposed to through perhaps a Russian embargo. But look, let's step back here and think about it for, for a second. Uh, the reason this is such a big issue for the market, even though you know, I think the odds of an invasion are low, the reason it's a big issue is that it's occurring in an inflationary context. And really the only geopolitical event that's ever been truly you know, shocking for the market, if you look at the whole slew of wars and conflicts we've had, was the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Why? Because it came at the top of an inflationary cycle. It came at a wrong time. It was a cherry on top of an inflationary Sunday. And that's what Russia-Ukraine conflict would be if it were to happen. It's very interesting that you think oil is not the commodity that is best positioned here and that maybe some of the others are better positioned. Is it palladium that Russia exports a significant amount of? I mean, I don't know if you want to get tactical there. I don't know. You know, I've heard people make the case for Russian ETFs and equities saying that, you know, in the long run, they're cheap and undervalued and all the rest of it. But what do you make of all that? So first of all, you nailed it, Kelly. You know, you don't need me on, my sh on your show. You already figured it out. That's exactly the commodity that you should be using to hedge. But the other one also is I think wheat. Wheat could get a little bit of a bump. I mean, I, I'm bullish on softs for a whole slew of other reasons. Natural gas prices are high. Fertilizer costs are rising. Now, as for Russian specific assets, I do think there's a geopolitical alpha opportunity uh, in those in the in those markets. If this truly is what I think it is, which is that it's basically a long drawn out negotiations between Russia and the West for redrawing like a grand bargain between the two. If that's really what's happening, then, of course, Russian assets could very well uh, be the best performers this year. That said, again, no matter how low probability I think of conflict is, the downside risk is so large that I wouldn't be nibbling at those assets yet. Yeah. Maybe wait for the current military exercises to end on February 20th. That could be a good time to do that. Very interesting. So let me actually conclude by taking a bit of a pivot there because you've mentioned uh, softs and some of the metals and your bullishness, it sounds like, on the whole commodities complex. How much upside do you think there could be this year or for how many years for investors? I mean, I think we're in a new commodity super cycle. And the reasons for that are really multivariate. First of all, we have a new CapEx cycle. You know, governments are prioritizing what I call the national security redundancy prerogative. So we're building out all these fabs everywhere in the world hmm. because everybody wants to build semiconductors. Well, guess what? In long term, there'll be deflationary semiconductor prices will go down. But in the meantime, you got to build all these fabs. That's going to take a lot of materials, a lot of investment. That's the number one issue. Second is the green agenda, both in terms of starving fossil fuel producers of necessary capital to surge production, but also in terms of creating higher costs for alternative uh, energy as well. And I think that that's another reason why uh, we're going to have you know, a commodity basically super cycle. I'm not the only one to have said this. I think right. this is now 
starting to be kind of the consensus view. And, and I think it's one that investors should play out. Now, that, that said, it doesn't necessarily mean that oil prices are a straight shot. They've gone up a lot. There's been clearly some geopolitical risk premium because of uh, Ukraine and Russia, but a hawkish Fed could very well burst that into interim, tactically speaking, if Russia ends up withdrawing and going back to the negotiating table. No, it's a great point. I appreciate the way you connect some of those dots that we hadn't thought about. Marco, again, great to have you here. Thank you for your time. Always a pleasure, Kelly. Marco Popich with the Clock Tower Group. Still ahead, we know about Fang, but now there's MIFT. It's not that kind of MIFT, although you might be at Fang. It includes this chart. It's the name and the rest of the trade which Bank of America calls critical in the energy transition. We have that next. And remember, you can catch this show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following The Exchange podcast. Just search CNBC The Exchange. You'll get show episodes. You'll get my conversations with Kelly. I read my newsletter. There's a lot to offer. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be right back. The energy transition depends on a set of mined raw materials that Bank of America calls the MIFs. Pippa Stevens is here with what that stands for and why the trade could be lucrative. Pippa? Hey, Kelly, a new acronym, MIFs, stands for Metals Important for Future Technologies and encapsulates their vital role. Clean energy generally requires more materials than fossil fuel power. And to hit net zero by 2050, mineral inputs will need to rise sixfold in the next 20 years, according to the IEA. This growing demand is pushing up prices as supply chains are still recovering. Lithium is at a record high, jumping 54 percent this year after rising nearly 500 percent in 2021. That's according to Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. Cobalt is at a more than four-year high, and nickel is at the highest in a decade. Copper and aluminum have much broader uses, but are also key to clean technology, especially for solar. And then there are rare earths, zinc, graphite, and manganese, among others. Now, some of these markets are difficult for investors to access directly, and so the miners can be the only options. But shares don't always follow the underlying metal. For general exposure, Vanek recently launched a green metals ETF, ticker GMET, on a more specific level, Albemarle, SQM, and Livent are some of the lithium players. And then major miners like Glencore, Rio, and Vale are also entering these markets. As Cowan Managing Director David Deckelbaum put it, everyone wants in on the EV supply chain. Kelly? But is it ESG approved? Because mining typically isn't. But if it's for, you know, the energy transition, how are they going to score it? And it's complicated because by mining by its very nature is very resource intensive. It requires a lot of water, among other things, and can be very disruptive to local communities. And there's also the question about whether or not those same communities benefit from the energy transition. So along with moving away from fossil fuel power generation, people also say that we really have to be mindful about making sure that we aren't just trampling on human rights. So kind of a little bit of a disconnect there between the intensive nature of mining and how important these things are for the energy transition. Miffed. Uh, metals important for future technologies. All right, I got it. Pippa, thank you very much. We appreciate it, Pippa Stevens, today. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.